Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, this is Benjamin Boyce. I have an interview for you today with Lisa Marciano, who's a union psychotherapist or psychotherapist or however you pronounce that. In this interview, we talk about specifically the susceptibility of young women to mass hysteria um, in the light of all that I've been talking about with what's being called rapid onset gender dysphoria, which is a controversial term, uh, needs more research done into it. But in the light of that, we talk about how the search for meaning can be disrupted when people look at distress as a problem with a singular solution rather than a journey of self-actual and self-betterment. We also talk about a range of other issues and dive into the Jungian frame of mind. I have to say that I rather am a Jungian at heart. He has uh, given me a lot of access to the multiplication of meaning, especially in art and literature and other forms of social um, uh, product, uh, including social interactions, such as this social interaction right here. Lisa does run a podcast with two other Jungian psychotherapists, and that's called This Jungian Life. You should definitely check that out. Um, If you are totally, uh, you know, skeptical of this, it might give you reason to not be skeptical. If you love this stuff, then you have more stuff to love. They spend half an hour of every episode deconstructing somebody's dream which is freaking awesome so hopefully i'll get her back on here so we can deconstruct dream or at least talk about dream reading anyways rambling a lot here's lisa it's kind of ironic um i was poking around in your stuff but i'm kind of in a sim uh semi debate with a friend of mine about rapid onset gender dysphoria okay um because i'm interviewing a number of desisted um trans teens uh, females uh, and uh, they kind of are the way that their stories are unfolding. It's just it's the same as what's described oh, yeah. as Definitely. rapid onset gender dysphoria. And so my friend was saying that the certain aspects, certain parts of the trans community think it's the similar to anti-vaxxer um, conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. And then I just stumbled upon your article right before we started talking yeah, yeah. where you like yeah. go through and start talking about that. So mm-hmm. have you have had... Uh, experience working with teens, uh, gender questioning teens, and so you know, I don't, I don't, I've, I've never worked with adolescents in my practice. I oh. really work primarily with adults, and um, I mean, I've I've done some work with teens, but it's not really, it's not really my forte. Mm-hmm. So, um, so what happened was a few years ago, this kind of started to come into my life. Both, both in my practice, I had some, I had some clients who, you know, had family members or something who mm. had a kid going through this. But, but also, I have two teenagers, and so they were coming home and they were talking about, you know, their friends or people mm. that they knew, and it was like all of a sudden in like 2015, it just sort of seemed like this was all of a sudden everywhere, and it immediately just looked to me like social contagion, like because it was it was happening in these groups of kids, and first one would come out, and then another would come out, and there was this kind of this kind of um, you know intensity about it. These kids mm. kind of talking about it all the time, and uh, kind of co-ruminating about it. And I I thought, well, I know what that is. You know that 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 looks like sort of peer influence. You know, um, which which is I mean that's what teenagers do, right? Yeah. It's not. It's not like that's inherently a bad thing. That's part of how teenagers explore who they are. But clearly, if you're talking about, you know, like once I learned that there was permanent metal, medical intervention that was going on, it was like, whoa, <laughs> you know, so that's when hmm. that's when I immediately became concerned and, and started looking into it and started yeah. researching it and reading more about it. And um, and and then felt and then once I felt like I. Once I felt like I was pretty sure about what I was seeing, or, or once I felt very sure, I would say I felt like I have to say something. Okay. 
And that's when you wrote the Quillette article. Have you done other articles? Um, yeah, I, I have an article that um, appeared in a Jungian journal called Psychological Perspectives. Okay. It, it's called Outbreak on Transgender Teens and Psychic infection i think maybe that's not exactly the right title but it's um it's the mo most viewed article in that journal ever okay so let's say give let's bypass the debate of whether or not it's a thing and let's just say that teenagers right now are mm -hmm. statistically mm -hmm. pursuing um mm -hmm. either a non-binary or a change of their gender Yes. Uh, how do we, what, what's causing that? If, if it is a, a narrative, this is what I've been talking about with yeah, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. a girl today. It seems like there's a story that, that really, it possesses people. Yes. And that's a good speaking, it. speaking to a Jungian psychologist, how can we use narrative to at least slow down or, or cause some self-reflexivity to go on mm -hmm. in this mm -hmm. kind of social mm -hmm. milieu of co-rumination? Co mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's that's a really interesting question. Um, well, first of all, I, I want to say just a little bit about your. I like what you said about how it kind of possesses people. You know, there's there are, the, we've known for a long time that there there can be these sort of medically shaped contagions. You know, I mean, uh, I mean, you know, I imagine you could go really far back with this, but one of the ones that I've been thinking about is hysteria at the end of the 19th century. Mm. Um, um, Jean Martin Charcot was a neurologist in Paris. He worked at this place, place called the Salpetriere, and he started. He had he had done all this work. Oh God, I can't remember what it was right now. It was important work on on some condition that he, you know, these patients would have this condition, and then he, once they were deceased, he would do these autopsies on the cadavers, and he could find like there were these lesions that hmm. accounted for the symptom. Right, that was a big finding. There was like a biological basis for this. So then these young women, remember this, young women came in with these. Hmm bizarre symptoms. They couldn't be traced to any biological cause, but he became convinced that he would be able to find the cause of it. And this was hysteria. That's what he called it. He called it hysteria. And he became very interested in this. He had all these kind of famous female patients. There were these lectures at the Salpetriere on Tuesdays, and like Parisian society would come out to watch him demonstrate these really dramatic patients. These young women would like convulse and do all these crazy things kind of on command, right? Wow. And there would there would be they took these photographs of these young women and they were spread about in the in the, you know, pe uh, periodicals of the time and it became very famous and it became kind of you know, kind of sexy, you know, has, has, I mean, in in the sense that it was something that people were interested in, they were talking about it and um, and wouldn't you know it, hysteria, these young women started manifesting these hysterical symptoms, mostly young women, sometimes men, but mostly young women, hmm. all across the continent. Hmm. So there was a hysteria, hysteria. Yeah. Yep. There was a hysteria, hysteria. And then, and then, you know, and then we've seen it more recently too with, you know, before, so actually, um, uh, restricted eating, like what we might think of as kind of anorexia. Yeah was sometimes one of the symptoms of hysteria in the 19th century. And then after after Mar uh, uh, Charcot passed, within like a decade, there were like no more cases of hysteria hmm. or something like that. I might have my numbers wrong, but but you get it just kind of went away, right? Yeah. And and so in the early 1900s, the first half of the 20th century, like eating disorders were anorexia, let's say, were just incredibly rare. Just, you know, you just, you just didn't see it. And then Karen Carpenter collapsed with a heart attack oh, yeah. in whatever year that was. And boom, all of a sudden, young women, huh. adolescent girls were getting anorexia, you know. And then, of course, the, there's another very famous um, with bulimia. No one had even heard of it. It was named, it was picked up in like Marie Claire or some other women's magazines. And within like a decade, there were millions of people with puking after a meal. Mm -hmm. wow. mm -hmm. So, so there's no question that, that, that these kind of ways of thinking about our distress. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
are are um, can are 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 sort of um, co-manufactured by a complex process between the kind of medical therapeutic establishment and the patients. They kind of reinforce each other. Mm-hmm. This narrative gets created. Then that that changes what the say doctor or therapist expects to see, right? And when the patient brings in what the therapist expects to see. You know, and these become kind of celebrity diagnoses too. Like mm-hmm. Charcot, he kind of made his fortune on hysteria. You look up Charcot, you're going to see hysteria. Hmm. You know, and in Wikipedia, you look up Charcot, and there's hysteria. He's famous for it, even though he did other stuff that was important. That was that's yeah. what made his mark. Or you know, the the doctors that that you know therapists that had kind of specialized in eating disorders back back in the 60s and 70s. You know, it it sort of became a thing and. And, and so, you know, therapists kind of respond when the patient brings it. It's like, oh, it's one of those. It's this exciting new thing, you know. Mm-hmm. So there's a kind of um, – there's a way that, that it, the whole thing kind of gets entrained to, to sort of um, – Self-reinforce then. Yes, thank way. you. It kind of becomes self-reinforcing. And, yeah. and so back to your question about how can we use narrative kind of unwind this. I mean one of the things that, that I'm aware of is – so, so to have a little more space around how uh, around symptoms and what we imagine symptoms to be, because if we if we can hold in mind that symptoms might be symbolic, they might express an underlying truth than yeah, just okay. what they look like on the surface. That gives us room to kind of walk around and circumambulate and think, yeah. what might be underneath the initial presentation, right? And, and, Hmm. you know, that, that really opens things up a lot. So one thing, I guess space is a metaphor for patience or being calm about it and slowing down. Well, and also, I mean, having reflective capacity, right? Being able to stand here and look there, right? So you're not identified with, with either the patient's symptoms or if you're the patient with your own symptoms. So you, Mm -hmm. you can say, huh, that's interesting. What about that? Mm-hmm. You know, so anyway, I'm sorry I cut you no, off. No, but teenagers right. don't necessarily have that capacity um, no, they out don't. the gate, right? They need no, to be, that's, that's a capacity that you develop. Uh, Absolutely. The, the weird thing about this particular uh, hysteria, or uh-huh. I guess like social um, emergent uh, mm-hmm. unification yeah. of distress. I loved how you, how you put that, like the ways that we deal with our distress. Um, this is being reinforced by the medical establishment, by the psychological establishment, yes, and by, by adults, and then by the activist community, the activist and community the themselves, and by the media, too. Um, and they're all just, uh, they're pushing this narrative of, if you if you have it, if you think you have it, you have it. That's right. There's no diagnosis, right? I mean, it's a weird thing, because we mm. have this situation where, so gender dysphoria, which which supposedly is a requirement to be trans, right? I mean, if you're talking about um, having interventions done and getting a third-party payer to pay for it, you need a diagnosis, right? Now, an informed consent clinic, I guess it's different. But if you think about it as like a diagnosis, it's in the DSM. We have this weird thing where you have this symptom that you would want to take to a therapist to get a diagnosis, but the therapist is not allowed to make the symptom the focus of clinical inquiry because you can't ask questions about it. You're supposed to just affirm. Yeah. It's a very strange, it, it, it's, um, it, there, there's, there's, it's incoherent. Yeah. I did. Right? Do you have any insight into how adults are acting like that? That, that just seems totally unprofessional. And even even it's malpractice in in a certain respect, especially if if these young people end up going on to getting things cut out mm-hmm. of their bodies. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it, it is so strange to 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 try to wrap my head around how 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 you know. I mean, I think one of the things. I guess there's sort of two answers to that question. One thing is that this is so. Is this a kind of problem of the soul, you know, which is what we do in psychotherapy is we try to heal the soul. Mm -hmm. Is it a problem of the soul? You know, that's one way to look at it. Mm -hmm. It's been framed in the language of human rights or civil rights, right? 
So if you look at it as a civil right, well, of course, you, you shouldn't ask anyone any questions. You should just affirm that like if the okay. kind of la- the kind of co-op or, or translating it into civil rights language, yeah. you know, has as been a very liberatory, successful. It's a liberation. Yes. Yes. Rather than a, the, a solution or a path yeah, towards solution. Th- you know, the other thing I would say about this is that when I first was diving into this, reading as much as I could, talking to as many people as I could on all sides from all angles, and it was beginning to wash over me what was happening, you know, this kind of like, I can't even believe this is happening. Hmm. I, I had this moment where I thought, I must have this wrong, right? Because there's no way that lots and lots of smart people that have been dealing with this issue a lot longer than I have are right and I'm wrong. And hmm. and then I sort of thought, oh, no, no, it is possible because this has happened before. Okay. I mean, um, you know, this happened with satanic ritual abuse and, um, you know, false memories, which which is controversial, but but still something similar happened there. And there was a time. And multiple in, personality too. multiple personality disorders. Exactly. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I mean, so how many times has my profession, yeah, your profession. gone down this rabbit hole yeah. before, you know, what's about, what is it about psychology that do you think it's acutely vulnerable to this sort of behavior? It seems like a lemming, like, uh, everybody just starts running towards one, I guess, diagnosis. I don't know. I don't know if 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 this profession is more vulnerable to this than others. Um, I'd I'd have to think about that. I mean, yeah. it's. I don't mean you, a, to throw you into no, it's, it's, crisis or anything. No, no. Like believe me, believe me. It's I've been there. <laughs> no. And um. So. Uh, I want to milk this more. Uh, Mm -hmm. but, um, you're a Jungian. Maybe, Mm -hmm. maybe we can back away from this because I want to talk about Jungian stuff. Uh, Mm -hmm. this is a, I I love Jung. Like I discovered him when I was, uh, I think I was 20. I was in a really bad space and I found him in the, uh, in the library and like, he started making sense of the way that I'd already been making sense of the world. I was, I was already writing mythology and I had like a very rich, uh, um, relationship with these characters I made. And then he went through and he told me about how all the different characters yeah, that yeah. I was talking about. It was really interesting. Um, and and I ingested a lot of him. And he was very impactful on me, him and Nietzsche. Uh, and, uh-huh. and, and he gave me insight into how I can think about religion and, and how I can navigate the world and then how I can use my imagination to, to understand other people. And Mm -hmm. and to actually take entertainment and actually like read it as something meaningful Mm -hmm. and produce Mm -hmm. it as something meaningful by Mm -hmm. what you say, seeing things as symbols and giving space to these these things. Um, And then in the last couple of years, this guy from Canada, like kind of came out of nowhere, uh, Jordan Peterson. Mm-hmm. And he maybe I don't want to be unfair to your school of thought, but he kind of put that back into the public consciousness. He's mm-hmm. really did a lot to uh, bring Jung back uh, mm-hmm. in a bigger or smaller way. And so there's some po- there, there with the return of Jung, there's popular misconceptions of mm-hmm. Jung and, and maybe even like proper uh, criticisms of Jung. And w- when you do you see that? And, and what are what are some of the misconceptions that people have about Jung and how have you taken Jung and, and shaped shaped him and built on him or how has he been built on um you know i don't hear myself a lot of criticism about young i mean i i guess i'm aware that some people have said things like he was what i mean there was an article in i can't even remember now there was an article last summer kind of accusing him of being you know sort of you know aligned with the nazis or something like that something kind of strange or bizarre, you know, the very, very, you know, very kind of conservative and debunked and all this stuff. But most of the time, people Hmm. are so excited to either either they've just found it and they're just so excited. I mean, I I have a podcast where we talk about Jungian stuff. I know that. Yeah, it's um, am I allowed to say can I? Yeah, please. No. Yeah, yeah, let's plug. Let's plug. (laughs) It's called This Jungian Life. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah. And, and, um, and it, it's, you know, we just sort of talk about anything. People are so enthusiastic 
and find it really, really meaningful. Well, so, okay, then that, the question is, why do you think people find it so enthusiastic or enthusiastic? Find it so meaningful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, now that's a big question, but I, I, I guess I would say that um, over the course of you know the centuries, right? Our our culture has kind of really drifted toward this kind of hyper rational approach that kind of flattens things, right? Mm. It relates to what we were saying before, because in in a kind of hyper rational world, things are just as they seem. Yeah. Right. Mm. There, there is nothing behind it. There's no depth. But you know, Jung, and and he was pretty, you know, conscious that he was doing this. I mean, in some sense, mm. his his whole opus was about restoring the irrational. You know, kind of giving the irrational a seat at the table. Okay. So you know, intuition and um, that which is embodied, and mm. uh, you know that, you know, the soul really, you mm. know. So we've sort of been living in this desert of rationality, and then here Jung kind of brings this back. Mm-hmm. And and so like you're saying, you know, when you found it and you could suddenly understand, you look at, you know, say a, some, you know, an opera, let's say, and all of a sudden it didn't make much sense before. But now it's like, you know, it's like now the whole thing is in 3D. Yeah. Now there's depth, right? So I, I think that, that people people find the kind of just the the sort of overly rational explanation about things to be like inherently undissatisfying yeah maybe you can't even really articulate why Mm -hmm. but then someone comes along i mean so here's one of the reviews that we got on itunes that it's very moving to me this this guy says you know I'm a therapist. I didn't know anything about Jung. I heard this podcast. They did a pod. We did a podcast on alcoholism, and we, you know, Jung. Jung was um, uh, an alchemist holic. He, <laughs> he played a role in the founding of AA. Okay, yeah. Because Bill W. went and talked to him, and oh, okay. there's this letter that, that okay. he wrote. Yeah, there's this letter that he wrote to Bill W. He says, you know, he basically said, you, you, you know, this, this, that you need to be in contact with something larger than yourself to heal this. This is a spiritual crisis. That's hmm. what he says in this letter. So yeah. we talk about that in the podcast, right? And this therapist writes us this, you know, review on iTunes that I, I had never thought about it that way. It changed the whole way that I looked at addiction. It's changing hmm. the whole way I look at everything. <laughs> Because suddenly, if you if you make room for the symbolic, then there's just multiple ways to read things. There's just layer upon layer of meaning. Yeah, and and it's it gives deeply... you a, it gives you a crane to like really like remove yourself from the the, right. the apparent situation and start moving right. blocks around. Mm-hmm. Well, and to kind of you know see it from the thirty thousand foot view, right? Yeah. You know, Jung says a couple of different places, something like, we don't solve our problems, we grow larger than them. Hmm. And in, in one of those passages, it's this really beautiful imagery about sort of really getting up above things, you know. And there, there again, that's that kind of reflective space that we referred to yeah. before. But can't you get so, lost in that removal? Um, you, you can, but, but um, uh, it's... <sighs> But but it's a both and because you want to be in in the embodied experience of it and at the same time having a larger view of it. Yeah, it's not dissociation. So it's both, right? No, no, okay. it's not. It's it's a moving back and forth between, hmm. um, or or sort of being able to ha- inhabit both of those points at the same time. I think. So so you know I just want to say the other thing. I think that people. I mean, probably certainly not everyone. But for those to whom Young speaks, there's a sense you read Young and you think, well, this is what I thought. For one thing, it feels profoundly true. Hmm. And it, it also feels really beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, there's you know, a very as, aesthetic uh, yeah. core. Well, essentially what he says is there is meaning. And like, <laughs> we need that. I really yeah. believe we need that. Yeah. We're hungry for it. You know, it might be a third way um, to, to circle back to uh, at least the trans rights um, yeah. aspect of it. And, and, and there's trans people, there's trans rights, and trans rights 
is a part mm-hmm. of a larger progressive movement. And yes. the progressive movement, it, it has certain ways of being or ways of making sense that it seems like it's a backlash from the rational. It's a backlash from the postmodern. It's a backlash from the meaningless to imbue things with meaning. But the way in which it imbues meaning in things is so stark yeah. and, and so rigid. Uh, yeah, so yeah. To, to use a word that my dad doesn't like me using because I'm misusing it, fundamentalist. Um, yeah. Well, it's concretized. What do you mean? Okay, so I, I agree with you. I, I actually think this is true. I think a lot of the young people that are choosing to identify as trans, they are searching for a deep transcendent experience. Mm. They're searching for something that actually transcends biology, if you think about it. Yeah. They, they want to. And, and they, culture, and the culture roles. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yes. And, and, um, hmm. and, and I, you know, and I could talk about, you, you know, how this this can look in adults too, which I think is kind of different by the way, or, or can be, but, um, but thinking specifically in terms of teens, you know, they, they are trying to kind of reach beyond something, right. And to have this kind of deep experience, both of belonging and standing out and kind of, um, traveling their own path and, um, kind of digging in deeply to discover who they are. But the thing is, if you think about, okay, so here's another way that Jung kind of intersects with with um, trans ideology is, you know, one of Jung's core beliefs was that um, we, each of us have the masculine and the feminine as part of us. And if we're a man, we have an inner feminine, he called it the anima. And yeah, if we're yeah. a woman, we have an inner masculine called the animus. And he believed that it was, this was an essential part of the psyche. I mean, very important. And that it was so important to one's kind of um, to self-actualize. Wholeness, it was yeah. so important wholeness to engage with that. So, so if you think about it symbolically, you know, kind of getting to know your inner man. If you're, say, a young teenager, female teenager, it's very important to say, "Well, now I am a man." Is concretizing it? Okay. Right. It's making it a concrete thing. Yeah. Taking it out of the symbolic or psychological realm. Yeah. And what's the temptation and what's the pro- what's the problems that arise from concretizing the symbolic? Um, <laughs> you know, I think it becomes fundamentalist. <laughs> <laughs> you mean I like think... it has to be this way and then yeah. everybody else has yeah, to yeah. see my penis as a, a female penis now yeah. to quote a Twitter yeah. tweet. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, you and you lose you lose any ability. I mean, it once once it's not symbolic, it's static, right? Hmm. I mean, this something that's symbolic always points beyond itself to something larger that can't quite be languaged. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's like it opens up into this larger space. Yeah. But once if you make it concrete, it becomes fixed. Yeah. You know, and then it it loses. Does it become the kind pathological of in a way, or does it I, seep into I, the pathological? Does it... I think that that is possibly one way to think about a definition of pathology: something that's overly concrete. Hmm. And then I'd have to think about that more. But yeah, yeah, yeah. And not to pathologize somebody's uh, identity, but just the act of taking. I, I just had I just had a really wonderful discussion with another de- desisted uh, f- young woman, uh, and she she's a really big literature buff. And I kept on uh, being unable not to frame her 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 story in terms of an adventure, in terms of like of an odyssey of mm-hmm. of the actualization. How does a young woman actualize herself? And mm-hmm. and it just seemed like the way that she. Saul to actualize herself was to become a man and Mm -hmm. and to and and so but i i think i think that that to return to a narrative symbolic way of thinking Mm -hmm. uh, is more empowering than this physical mutation or transformation when what's actually wanted is a transformation of the self into incorporating maybe this is union incorporating the masculine and the feminine yeah in in a self that 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 is one thing, but is able to, you know, exist in, in both ways. Yeah. And no, I think that's a great way of putting it. And I, and I would also say that, you know, when I, when I work with people clinically, you know, one of the things that happens in a very practical way, as you make um, unconscious processes more and more conscious is mm. you develop, you, you actually wind up having more choices, you know, and I, I'm saying choices in terms of how you react to things. Yeah. 
So if you if you've all you know if you or solutions, yeah. Yes. So and so you develop this ability to be like, okay, well, I have this situation, and I could react like this, or I could react like that, or I could do this, and and so you're so one of the things that happens, I think, hmm. is you're getting more conscious, is your choices start multiplying. Yeah. You know, cho- choice is just about how you act in a certain situation, and so you hmm. know the process you just described of kind of becoming more whole and integrating more, yeah, your choices open up. Whereas it's like, okay, well, I'm, I'm a man and everyone needs to see me as a man. And I've got to focus a hundred percent on trying to get people to see me as a man. Like your choices are actually narrowing. Yeah. I do, I do want to say, because um, one of hmm. the real gifts of diving into this work is I have gotten to know uh, many trans people. And there, there are so many trans people out there who have walked a very hard road for whom, for whom transitioning has really been an mm. act of individuation, very mm. hard one. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they maybe, for whatever reason, experience, experience themselves as different their whole lives, wrestled with that, um, and, and at some point came to terms with the best way to solve that dilemma or to continue was to transition. And, and they, you know, they, they, they hmm. you know, they, in fact, you've interviewed some of them, you know, um, but, but they live in this space where they have to hold this both end of, yeah. you know, they're, they're, uh, they're trans, they're, you know, they, they live as say a woman, but they're, you know, they're male and, and, and hmm. the, the, the capacity to wrap your head around that degree of, um, hmm. I want to say, to, to, you know, to hold those two things. I mean, that takes a lot of psychological sophistication and hmm. is the mark of someone who's done a lot of hard work of, of integration. And I, I do think hmm. that transition can be, uh, like I said, a path of, of kind of individuation or wholeness. I've, I've had the good fortune to meet people for whom that is true. So I don't think that this is always a pathology or yeah. that, you know, that these are, you know, these are terribly, you know, sick people making a bad decision. I don't. I, I think what's going on with teenagers, especially natal females right now, is social contagion. And and listen, any time that you do something to join the pack, that's not an act of individuation. <laughs> By definition, yeah, right? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> well, okay. I mean, I'm sure there's like, um, I'm sure there's a dialogue between uh, the clan and the individual, and certain rites of passage are are built in by this point into our psychologies where we mm-hmm. need to go through that, and it's mm-hmm. a back and forth. Um, but maybe on the on large scale, when we get to the theater of society that we're operating on right now. Um, where where it's happening. But what are your thoughts about young women specifically and their vulnerability to uh, these, every generation, it seems like, yes. you can enumerate like some massive uh, rally uh, of pathology that, that happens all at once. Um, well, if you look up um, mass hysteria on Wikipedia, or at least, you know, this was true a couple of years ago, I haven't done it recently, it gives a list of like, 60 mass hysterias throughout history mm-hmm. and most of them predominantly affected adolescent girls and why is it is well, it the patriarchy i i don't know about that i okay. mean i think that I, I think that there's something you know that that females may be more um susceptible to sort of disturbances in of the mind body connection because our hmm because because our, our sexuality is kind of so diffuse, you know. Hmm. Um, that's what do you one mean theory. By that? Diffuse. Um, I I mean that 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 um, female sexuality is sort of, you know, female sexual pleasure is sort of experienced all over the body rather than focused in one place, shall we say? Yeah. Um, and and. Uh, you know, we have a different relationship with our embodied experience yeah. than men do. I mean, teenagers, I don't think that's hard. I mean, the, the limbic system develops faster than the prefrontal cortex. The limbic system processes, um, you know, emotion. So, you know, teen teen girls are very um, susceptible to co-rumination. Hmm. Um, they're very Their susceptible. limbic systems they're... resonate together because they don't have that cortex filtering uh things is that would that be one way of, of conceptualizing I, I, it yeah i mean we might be getting a little bit out of my pay grade here because i'm not a neuroscientist okay. but something like that yeah 
but um but but yeah and to, you know I, I i think there's also research although i'm not up on it about um suggestibility and teen girls being highly highly suggestible as well mm-hmm. i mean not that it never hits you know um you know adolescent males and i i've my best guess is about 30 percent of the rogd kids are male so that's not nothing mm-hmm. i don't want to i don't want to leave them out yeah but but it is it is about 70 percent natal female it, one thing that's coming up in speaking with desisted uh, young women, um, and and I, I'm glad you put that caveat. I haven't been putting that caveat, but this is just one group of people that I'm interviewing right now. So I'm I'm in their story, but there there's a lot mm-hmm. of other people out there who have different experience. And this isn't to say that transition itself or being trans in itself is uh, pathology. But one thing that that's recurring to me is um, one, one is the sexuality is, is coming to grips with one's uh, homosexuality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And another thing is, is having a, having an internalized misogyny, it seems like, or, or mm-hmm. dislike of the female or thinking of the woman as lesser. Uh, yeah. And, and there's a very strong feminist narrative about the, the woman as the oppressed class Mm -hmm. and and Mm -hmm. i'm not saying that that's not true because there's a lot of evidence to say that historically and in the world at large the the female gets the the short end of the stick uh at least outwardly in a lot of in a whole lot of ways Mm -hmm. um what what are narratives of empowerment that are specifically attuned to the female like like in generations past we had like the we had the princess story and stuff like that but that stuff has been kind of crapped all over now as pretty, uh, you know, old timey or, or sexist or whatever. But what are some narratives or, or symbols um, mm-hmm. or archetypes of the feminine that that can be meditated on by young women uh, that mm-hmm. that are positive versions of the female? Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> see, I don't a, think any. Well, I think I, I think I know what what you're asking. I mean, yeah. I, th- I think that I, I don't think that the old stories have been debunked, you know, because I think they're sort of our psychic bones, you know, myths and fairy tales. And they're a way that they're just kind of profoundly true on a symbolic sense. The interesting thing is, I mean, Hmm. Joseph Campbell, of course, elucidated the hero's journey. And, you know, there's a question of like, sort of, is the heroine's journey different? And I think it is. And I, I think that that sort of myths and stories of female initiation always involve a descent. You know, there's this, there's this descent, there's this idea of having to go in and down and Mm. it's, you know, it's, it's, it's frightening and terrifying and in much the same way that the hero's journey is, but it's a little bit less flashy and there's, there's more tasks like, um, yeah, there's uh, more mundanity and yeah. And, 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 you know, Hmm. sort of careful discernment tasks, like having to separate the poppy seeds from the wheat seeds or whatever that is that they have to do. Um, but, but the, Hmm. the truth is that there's, you know, what, what, what the boon at the end of these stories is, is usually something like, um, claiming one's authentic authority, which Hmm. is a real piece of work for a lot of women you know, in our culture, you know, I th- but I think that that's often the task of, of the heroine in a lot of the fairy tales and myths, you know. So like, f- for example, one of the oldest myths is um, this myth of Inanna and Ereshkigal. So Inanna's, this, these are, um, I forget if they're Sumerian or Babylonian, but they're, you know, they're one of those, they're, they're old. And Ereshkigal is this, um, they're supposedly sisters, but Ereshkigal is this, is this sort of hag- like person who lives in the underworld so she's some sort of underworld uh kind of demonic goddess Mm -hmm. and then there's inanna and she's beautiful she's sort of associated she's sort of like an aphrodite kind of goddess Mm -hmm. and she goes down to visit her sister and uh when she does she has to surrender all of her jewelry and all of her clothing so she arrives totally naked and then her sister kills her and hangs her on a meat peg to rot so she's dead down there in the underworld for some time, and then there's this process by which um, hmm. someone comes down and, and kind of pleads for her and bargains for her, and so she's allowed to return. She's allowed to return, and when she does, she brings back with her the eyes of death. <laughs> so she can so she can just look at you and kill you. It's just, so she goes down like very nice and agreeable 
and compliant and sweet and pretty, you know, <laughs> you put her on the cover of a Teen Vogue or something, yeah. but she comes back like she's a badass, yeah. you know, and that is, that is something that women have to do, you know, and that's, hmm. that's again, and, um, you know, that's in all kinds of fairy tales It's in Star Trek episodes. I mean, I could just go on and on and give you versions of that story. And I see it all the time in the women that I work with. And I think about these young women who are who have gone through transition and, and come back to the other side. It's like they went to the underworld yeah. and now they're back and and they're and they're they've got the eyes of death, man. They like don't they don't give a fuck. Mm-hmm. You know, they just want to tell the truth. Yeah. Yeah, it's they, really they very see the moving. line and they're going to call the line where the line is. Yep. Hmm. It's very moving. They've had yeah. an initiatory experience. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And and so I, I just wonder if a lot of the mass hysteria is just, it's kind of like this, uh, a regenerated process, like you're, like you're talking about, like, like that every generation has to go through that. And it just happens that enough psyches align where there's this new story with a new edge to it. And maybe that has something to do with the, the trendy nature of it or the mm-hmm. fashionable nature of it mm-hmm. um, and how that syncs up with the female psyche. But it, this has to be undergone no matter what. And I, you can do I, it together I, or you can do it alone. I like that. And I want to say that um, for me, this is very, very different, this one. Because, hmm. um, I mean... For example, you could you could say, okay, well, and in the seventies or whatever, it was eating disorders, and eating disorders are that is some scary shit. I mean, eating disorders have the highest mortality rate of any um, mental mm. health issue, if I'm not mistaken, or, or, or it's up there. You know, um, the, you know, they're very very serious. People die from eating disorders. Um, however, if your teenage daughter has an eating disorder, you can take her to a clinic where she will get appropriate treatment and she will be helped to come through the other side. If you are a parent and your kid develops ROGD, you are on your own. No one in the psychiatric or medical establishment is going to say, I know you feel like a boy, but you really should wait, you know, until you get to adulthood before you do irreversible things to your body. Instead, they're going to say, I'm sorry, ma'am, you know, you need to, Get your own therapy so that you can, you know, adjust to having a son, you know, or something like that. So, hmm. so there's a way in which, you know, yes, maybe I, I don't have a problem saying, yeah, somehow this is something kids need to do. Although in, in, in centuries past, we had ways to initiate young people, right? There were these, there were elders mm-hmm. who initiated, they didn't, they didn't self-initiate. There were, there were elders who, who had walked the path, who were wise, who would help them across the threshold into adulthood. Now we're leaving them to self-initiate through, you know, all kinds of things, which are, none of which are great. Right. And, and then, okay, but if you're self-initiating through, I don't know, let's, God forbid, drug, drug, you know, drug abuse, again, at least, at least there are people who are going to say, okay, this is a problem. We know what to do to help. But with this, you know, parents are being vilified. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things I've done is I, I began giving these consultations to parents on the phone, just talking to parents because I realized they had nowhere to turn to. So I've now spoken to hundreds of parents at this point. Really? And, and it's heartbreaking because, you know, these parents are very loving. They're very concerned, most of them. I mean, I'm sure there's a handful where that's not the case. But in my experience, mo- the vast majority, these are sophisticated, invested, caring parents hmm. who, who've had their ki- had this happen to their kids. And when they try to slow down, you know, the, the, it angers the kid. The kid wants it. But the kid can go anywhere. The kid can go to school and get affirmed at school. And the people at school will say, you know, I'm, you know, will vilify the parent for being unsupportive. You know, the, the parents get called transphobes. They can't even tell their friends because most of this is happening in these kind of progressive communities where if the parent tells their friends, the friends say, oh, congratulations. That's so, your son is so brave. Yeah. And the parent's like, that's not my experience. You know, this kid never mm. had an issue with gender until last week, you know, when she spent a week staring at YouTube transition videos, you know. 
Hmm. But no one, no these 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 parents have nowhere to turn. They're very isolated. So I think it's I think that this is not this is not a neutral or a benign way for these okay. kids to get initiated. There are real medical harms happening. And how do you, what are some of the tools that you end up giving the parents? Is there, I mean, it's just coping tools for themselves or communication tools or. Well, I, I, I mean, you know, I'm sort of figuring this out as I go, but one, one of the things I say is first of all, you know, you know, your kid better than anybody. So you have to trust your, your parental instincts, you know, because one, one of the negative things I think about the, the, the narrative around this is that parents don't know their kids, parents, you know, Mm. parents have got it all wrong. Well, I don't think that, I mean, of course that's true sometimes, but most parents know and love their kids. Okay. You know, like, like no one else on the planet really. Um, so, and then, and then the other thing that I say is that connection is the most important thing because the distress level is so high with these parents. I mean, think about, you know, going through something like this and not even having anywhere to turn. Like some of these parents are so anxious and and they just, they just want to do everything they can to pull their kid back and sometimes when they come on like a ton of bricks, it can actually push the kid away. So I say connection, connection, and then connection. But it can look different for a kid who's 13 versus a kid who's 21, let's say. If you got a 13-year-old who just came out as trans last week, you know, I think it's perfectly fine to um, say, you know, I love you and I'll support you no matter what, no matter who you are. Um, I don't care, you know, how you present yourself or, you know, who you want to have a relationship with, but it's you know, really too early to make any decisions like this. And so we're not going to do it. We're not going to change names. We're not going to change pronouns. I always tell parents that that's mm. a very individual decision. Some parents, I mean, I think it's fine either way. Some parents decide it really makes sense to do that. And some parents decide not to. And I just think it, it it's like it has to happen on the family level, but, but it's okay. I think when a kid is young, to, to, to just sort of gently kind of put some boundaries around what, what can and can't happen Mm -hmm. and then continue to help the child focus on, um, doing a range of activities, having a range of friends, um, not spending all their time on the internet, making sure that they're getting some exercise, making sure that they're out in nature, spending lots of time as a family, Mm -hmm. talking, talking, talking about, um, Mm -hmm. you know, ideas about gender just having conversations with them you know versus when your kid's 20 and she comes to you and says you know i'm trans then i I think you're in a different world because that that child can do whatever she wants to do Mm -hmm. you know and so trying at that point too hard usually just winds up in estrangement so that that's like might be a a very different orientation but it tends to be kind of individual yeah what is your conception um, of gender then and its relationship to sex, biological sex, that is? Um, well, and, and this kind of edges into the Jungian thing, too, in a way that's really kind of confusing. But so first of all, I mean, biological sex, I mean, we are a sexually dimorphic species. There are males and females. That's how we all got here. You know, there's a there's a male reproductive function and a female reproductive function. And so far, you can't make a human being without one of each. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so this this shouldn't be a big mystery. And this stuff about biological sex is a construct or something is ridiculous because, of course, it's not. <laughs> That's how you make babies, <laughs> you know. Um, uh, but. But gender, I think, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know that we really know. Gender doesn't have such a hard and fast, uh, you know, definition, does it? I mean, I think, I think that there are, you know, it's mostly mostly social, socially constructed. It refers to roles and, you know, expectations about how people present themselves. But do I think that every single last difference between men and women is down to social factors? No, I don't. I am. Mm. I think that there are some um, innate tendencies on a population level um women tend to be more agreeable than men for example and i think Mm -hmm. that there are sort of you know kind of um instincts and impulses that maybe are kind of gendered in nature and can be kind of constructed depending on our narrative into Mm -hmm. a gendered sense of ourselves i think that's a little more complicated yeah there's uh with the notion of archetypes do you you use archetypes i guess and the way that Mm -hmm. you think about things and yeah um, 
I guess I should probably ask you to define an archetype since I have a Jungian on the line. It would be great <laughs> to have an official. <laughs> well, they're, they're psychic universals. They're kind of universal patterns. They're, they're kind of patterned before experience. Hmm. So they don't, you know, Jung said that they don't really have a form. He compared them to hmm. the kind of crystal structure that's, uh, that's sort of inherent in a, uh, that, that sort of that sort of emerges. It's like kind of an emergent property that can kind of constellate out of something. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it isn't like there there is um you know, uh, um, hmm. it doesn't have a particular form or shape. It's a kind of an, an a, a energy or potential quality. Of, hmm. Yes, yes, kind of a potential that that can be imaged in a certain way. For example, in in uh, particularly in in religious imagery. You know, we would think about that as kind of archetypal, um, but it can it can be an experience too. And you you know that you're kind of touching into an archetype when it has a big feeling attached to it. Hmm. You know? Could so, you give an example of that, maybe in your life or a story? Yeah, or I mean, I I guess you know, um, you know. So uh, I I have two kids, and I remember when you know my. When I was pregnant with my daughter, I was mostly just like kind of anxious about it. I didn't know how it was going to go or if I was going to like it. And, you know, and then there she was. And it was like, oh, my God, you know, it's like, boy, you don't get many of that, those moments in your life. And it was hmm. there it was like the mother archetype, you know, okay. it was there and that was it. And then then I was a mom, you know, hmm. and it clearly shaped my life in profound ways, of course. Hmm. You know? And informs your life. Yeah. And uh I guess is there I guess with with the internet out here and everybody's constantly generating and has infinite access to potentially to everything but it seems like we all kind of just our attention naturally narrows onto hot topics and personal uh yeah. personal uh things that attract us personally but do you, do you see like a need or the possibility of a resurgence of resurgence of grand narratives aka a, a religious a narrative or a religious um kind of structure mm-hmm. coming back or is it always there can we get away from it and well that is such a great question um i've written about the sum and i and i've thought about it a lot and um you know young young one of the ways that young differed from freud is he felt that there were many basic instincts not just a sex instinct or freud had two sex and death but you know jung said there are many but one of one of them was that there's a religious instinct and you know he he called it the religious function of the psyche and he said that there Hmm. were sort of well he didn't say it like this this is sort of my bad paraphrase that we're sort of hardwired to need a relationship with something transpersonal Hmm. And, you know, this is actually borne out. Um, Clay Rutledge does has written about this. This is his area. He's a psychologist and he's this is his area of research. Mm-hmm. So one one of his I'm not going to be able to do a good job of kind of recapitulating this. But one of the things that 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 Clay has touched on is, for example, where um, where re- traditional religious belief like those who are who who um, cohorts with with less kind of traditional religious beliefs are more likely to believe in like UFOs. You know what I mean? So if we, Jung said something like if you, if you take away a man's gods, you know, you can't take away a man's gods. He'll, he'll just replace them with other ones. Yeah. Right. That's again, a bad paraphrase of a Jung quote, but he he says something like that a bunch of different times in a bunch of different ways. So Hmm. if, if you, if you're not, you know, in relationship with a kind of traditional, you know, God of a traditional religion, you know, you, you will, you will replace that with something, you know, it was, um, Hmm. um, yeah, I, I, I wrote about this, um, you know, it's like you, 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 you can't not worship, you know, we're always worshiping something. Hmm. So, so, and it's a little scary when you really take that in, um, because it's like, okay, well, what are we worshiping? You know, um, and and you know, well, we're worshiping wealth, we're worship, worshiping progress. Maybe we're worshiping intersectionality. You know, identity, um, yeah. identity, and and that's a really interesting thing to think about. I mean, mm-hmm. um, because you know, some 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 things that you might worship can lead you to pretty dangerous places. You know, think about 
what happened in the middle of the 20th century. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so I do think that we, as I kind of said a while ago, we have an inherent need for meaning. Yeah. And I, I do think that um, some people are finding the, their way, for example, to mythology, like you were talking about. I think that explains, in part, Peterson's popularity. I think yeah. what he does with mythology is absolutely brilliant. Um, and, uh, and cause you can feel it, you yeah. can feel that there's something good there, that there's meaning there. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but we, we do need to, f- to find something meaningful to relate to. And, and if we relate to an ism, you know, then, um, hmm. that can, that can lead to some dangerous places. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you, how do we how do you personally tell the difference between uh, something to worship that will lead you higher where, uh, as opposed to something that will lead you to a mm-hmm. heavier place or stiffer mm-hmm. stilted place? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a great question too. Um, I mean, for one thing, I think that um, there's a few things. First of all, if you're, if you're, if you're worshiping something that's sort of generally leading you in the right direction, um, you, you will, your, your sense of yourself and your world will get larger rather than smaller. Hmm. And you can tell that, for example, by like, are, are you allowed to have a sense of humor? Hmm. Because, because movements that don't have a sense of humor, man, there's something wrong there. <laughs> you, <think>? you know? <laughs> yeah, I do. Um, you'll, you'll be able to ask questions and the questions will generate more questions, right? Mm-hmm. Rather than, you know, questions sort of being shut down. And it's also like, um, you know, the Quakers have this lovely image of um, walking toward the light. They say, you know, when you're kind of on a spiritual search, you, you're, the image is you're in the dark, but you maybe just see a little bit of light over there. So you take one step, right? And as you take one step closer to the light, it gets a little brighter. So then yeah. you take another step and another step. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, and it's a little bit of a sense, like, you'll feel better. You won't feel worse. You'll feel better. Hmm. You know? And there, there's there's the way that kind of like out being spun up on outrage can temporarily feel good. Yes. Yeah. You know, and then um, you need to be even more angry the next time. Yes. Yeah. Right. It's kind of the drug of outrage, you know, yeah. and that's that's where you're getting into fundamentalism because fundamentalism goes along with outrage. Hmm. Because um, there's a real kind of us them. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, everything bad gets projected out onto the other. Um, so, um, but, but in the long haul, if you're feeling just tired and unhappy and worn down, you're probably not worshiping something that's making your life larger. This is a question that might not be something interesting to you, but I wonder about Jung and I, about the time I stumbled on him, I was doing a lot of research and I grew up in the Christian church. My father was a pastor and, and that, that insularity was breaking down and I was looking everywhere. My brain was, I was just roaming all over the place. And I had this thought and, uh, about the different religious traditions. So this is before I found Jung, but the different religious traditions are, it's just basically different symbols that are trying to talk about something that's inherently not symbolic even. And symbols are the closest thing we can get to the non-symbolic. And so it's not even necessarily, they're all saying the same thing, but they're all attempting to to uh, give tools to people to go on a journey. Maybe let's say um, mm-hmm. the pr- one one problem that we have now is that if we are going to have a religious tradition, uh, what happens when there's different religious traditions? And how how does it seems like there's something inside of our ability to believe that makes us need to think of something as the truth, which makes that, that, which means that this other thing is not the truth. And Mm -hmm. how do we still have, uh, our own inherent tradition, our own inherent, uh, internally cohesive religions without needing to destroy or demean other religions, but actually Mm -hmm. building, uh, in a multicultural world, is that even possible? And do you think that Jung gave us some tools to think about that? Yes. Boy, that is a big question. Um, so let's see. So first of all, you know, I, I'm not saying that we should go back to traditional religion. I actually, I was not, you know, m- my parents were both Southern Baptists. And mm. then 
as soon as they could leave the church, they did. So I was never even baptized. Oh, okay. <laughs> so but you're still I'm, somewhat I'm, Southern, though. Uh, I don't know, maybe. But but anyway, so so I mean, I don't have that in my past, you know. And and I think you know, Jung said people would come to him, and if they had a traditional belief system that still kind of had life for them, he was like, just go with it, you know, just go with it. He really felt like he, the what he was offering to people was people who didn't have a kind hmm. of container for transpersonal meaning, yeah. that then then his, you know, what he was doing could help them. But he, he was not in favor of taking that away from someone for whom it was working, but likewise, it's sort of like once the, you know, wine has run out of that uh, uh, flask, yeah. you can't put it back in. Hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So so I'm, I'm certainly not saying, oh, we should all just get back in line and become part of a, tradi- you know, traditional religion. Although I do I do think that because of their their long history, traditional religions can are, are a little bit less prone to hmm. um, extremism, maybe, than than, than uh, newer belief systems, newer isms that pop up. But, you know, it's not like the Catholic Church is not without problems. Yeah. Just, so yeah. this is all very thorny. Um, but yes, and, you know, to your point about how one, you know, kind of part of it becomes, well, I, I'm right and, you know, this other thing is wrong. You know, I mean, possibly in Buddhism, kind of gets away from that right hmm. and it's more just a kind of tools for kind of approaching this experience or um kind of orienting to it rather than a dogma where this is right and this is wrong mm-hmm. but but there is a way that 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 kind of tendency toward dogma is yeah. is kind of baked into the human experience a little bit to maybe and and Jonathan um, Haidt talks about that in The Righteous Mind, you know, mm-hmm. that, that beliefs are one of the things that kind of bind us together. Yeah, bind us, and insofar as they bind us, they blind us mm-hmm. in a certain respect. So, yeah, and I do think that, you know, Jung, Jung's ideas possibly provide tools for that. You know, there's one of Jung's collaborators was um, an analyst named Eric Neumann, and he was Jewish, and he immigrated to Israel um, after the war, and he wrote, you know, partly in response to the Holocaust, he wrote this book called Depth Psychology and a New Ethic. And, and he, he says in there that, that it's, a new, it's a new era. And, of course, he was speaking about, you know, this is, in, this is in the aftermath of, you know, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. You know, we're in a new day. Mm-hmm. And we can't get away with projecting evil out on the other anymore. Yeah. We have to really understand that each of us has that capacity within us, and we have to come to terms with it. And so, so kind of figuring out what's right and what's wrong is no longer, and this is kind of paraphrasing Neumann, just a question of which clan I belong to. Mm. I'm with that clan and we're right. That we each have to do our own work now. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing that I've seen... Um... I did a lo- I've been doing a lot of research into one particular outbreak of, of progressivism at the Evergreen State College where I was, and they had a big meltdown. I don't know if you know about that, but um, yes, I do. One thing that one thing that that continually comes up for me is that being involved in this movement, both for the oppressed classes and the allies who join forces with them, and the professors that indoctrinate them all in this one. One thing that I see that is so tempting about it is that you don't have to work on yourself anymore. That's right. That's you get right. to work on the world. Right. Because it's all out there. Yeah. Right. That's that's the kind of drug of outrage is hmm. is the 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 thing that's wrong is all out there. And and, you know, that's the other thing, too, is when you're feeling strong feelings of outrage, you don't have to feel your own feelings. Yeah. You know what I mean, you don't have to feel lost or depressed or confused or embarrassed or ashamed you know you just get to feel this kind of exultant feeling of there is a negative aspect that that does kind of go against what you just said about not uh not project you get to project it all with the allies specifically the white allies um and then to a lesser degree the the male allies and then to a lesser degree the heterosexual allies they get they get to not feel their own feelings by cloaking their feelings in a feeling of guilt and shame 
Um, yes. and, and instead of righteous anger at the world or righteous anger of their own tradition and stuff. Yes. So, so it does yeah. have an internal counterpart, uh, which, which is really reminiscent of certain strains of Christianity with the, with the hair shirt and the, and the yes. whipping of themselves and stuff. And yes. I wonder if it's not something about the American progressivism that has had an outbreak in the last few years. Uh, it just seems so American. It's, it goes back to Salem. It goes back to the Scarlet Letter. There's something very yeah, puritanical does. about yeah. it. I've had that thought too, because with puritanism, if I remember correctly from like high school, it's like, um, was it Calvinism? It's like you're, you're chosen, but you don't, to be saved, you have to be chosen, but you don't know if you're, it's, what is this doctrine of predetermination? Yeah, predetermination. Yeah. You don't know if you're one of the chosen. So if you're not chosen, then you might as well just say, fuck it and like do whatever you want, right? Because you're not going to get chosen no matter what you do. Yeah. But you don't know, so you better act good. It's just this, it's a real psychological double bind. Yeah. That, that seems to me there's strains of that in this too, because it's sort of like you're, you're not, um, you know, it's, it's like you never quite know if you're woke enough, you yeah. know, and you have to keep on trying and you're <laughs> never going to quite get there. And... You have to submit yourself to that, to that machine and clockwork orange, you know, like make sure that you're really woke, you know, and everybody's got to have their <laughs> eyes just like plastered wide open. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's, hmm. yeah, it's you know, it's sort of can submitting submitting to some kind of like purity ritual or something. Yeah, yeah. And is there what are some of the like the things that you've done? I don't want to paint this in a bad light, but there's got to be ways that you've seen to like wake wake people up to to the wokeness or whatever it is to like get people to to break out to see themselves or or initiate that process. Have you have you seen any archetypal patterns of somebody like kind of waking up to being in in a state of fury or outrage or, or groupthink or? You know, I think it's very hard to um, kind of. I mean, before this experience, I would have said, yeah, that would be really hard to do that. And now, having kind of living in it, I I just I haven't had any luck hmm. having as far as I know, you know, having conversations with people, I haven't had anyone come back to me and say, gee, you know, I thought more about what you said and you were really right. I mean, I think again, you know, Hmm. kind of pulling on height in the righteous mind, like you don't argue someone into agreeing with you. You don't rationally argue someone, you know, you have to, you have to, you know, win someone's trust Hmm. and, um, and then, you know, then perhaps you can share your ideas and then maybe the needle moves. I don't, I don't really think it's my business necessarily to Mm. change people's minds. You know, I don't, I don't feel like I'm kind of crusading. Um, but, uh, but, but I I do feel like I want to just be speaking the truth in as measured a way as I can, um, in order to have as many conversations as, Mm. um, I can with people who may want to listen to what I have to say. Well, I think we just had another one of those. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I should let you go. Thanks. Our hour sessions up, but um, you, you have your, uh, you have a, um, a website blog and you write for Quillette infrequently but there's several articles and then how often do you guys do this um Jungian uh Jungian life it's a weekly podcast oh cool right yeah, on this and, and our, our website's thisunionlife.com and we're on iTunes and every other place you can and you podcast. and who else is a part so of it? it's um two two uh, fellow Jungian analysts okay Deb, Deb Stewart and Joseph Lee and you guys just like pick ideas out of, or topics out of a hat or? yeah Yes, we we just pick a topic. In huh. fact, we we've done gender transition. That's a topic we've covered. And then the second half, we discuss a listener's dream. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really cool. Oh wow. Um, maybe maybe I can have you back and we can talk about dream analysis next. Time. Oh, I'd love to do that. Oh, really? Okay, great. Yeah, because yeah. that, that that stuff's really fun. Oh, it's so fascinating. <laughs> And maybe you can give me a tarot card reading. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, no, that's different. Okay. <laughs> All right, Lisa, thank you so much for joining yes, me. Yes, thank you. All right, take care. All right, bye.